Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. When I punch you in the face and then you don't want to be my friend anymore, that is a natural consequence. I don't actually need to be put in timeout. I don't need to be like all those other punishments don't need to happen because the natural consequence of my behavior will teach me and will motivate me to learn a new way. Hola, welcome to Absolutely Not. I'm your host, Leanna Lupin. Today's episode is the second part of a two-part series on education. In this episode, we get to hear from the incredible Viv and Liv about so many issues and solutions within education, but with a particular focus on the importance of early childhood education. Liv and Viv share some pretty revolutionary and unique things that their respective schools do, and they break down some really important and nuanced aspects of creating and running schools that are deeply and genuinely invested in questions of equity, especially within a larger system that seems interested in only perpetuating inequity. (coughs) Betsy DeVos. Anyway, okay, vamos. All right. Welcome to Absolutely Not. Thank you both so much for joining me. Uh, Can you just go ahead and quickly introduce yourselves? Yes, I am Liv. Uh, My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I am a principal at a preschool and elementary school in the Bay Area, um, and I identify as mixed race. I am half white and half Jamaican. I am Viv. And I am a co-founder of a uh, charter school in Madison, Wisconsin. I just finished uh, my time as the director of operations there, and I'm still in an advisory role. Uh, my pronouns are him, his, and he. Uh, and I am excited to be here. I know Lena from college. We went to school together, and that's how we know each other. Yeah, awesome. And I know Liv because she went to school with my brother. Um, so thank you both so much. I think just because we're going to be talking about education, if you could both give us maybe a little bit, uh, more background for your roles within education. So just walk us through your journey, I guess, from undergrad till now. I can start. Um, I, um, I went to Stanford undergrad with Leanna's brother and, um, was always interested in education, but definitely went to Stanford where people were like, you're going to go to Stanford and then become a teacher. Um, so there's just like a lot of, uh, a lot of feelings about that. And so I, I did my best to find a different career path. And then while taking linguistics courses at Stanford was introduced to the Hart and Risley study, a very famous study about, um, language development of young children in different socioeconomic statuses and was really blown away by just like the inequities that exist in, in the world, like duh. Um, (laughs) and I think that I, got back into education as a means of social justice rather than because I like kids, um, Mm -hmm. which I also do like kids. Yeah. um, (laughs) Also a prerequisite. (laughs) Um, And so I joined Teach for America after I graduated and uh, taught preschool up in Richmond, California, and then uh, moved to a charter for a little bit and taught kinder and then um, got got into the primary school, which is um, a really innovative um, game-changing school in the Bay Area, and uh, taught there for a few years, and moved into an admin admin role, and then mid-pandemic took over as principal. Ooh, ooh. Well, congrats! Not the easiest time to take over as principal, but congratulations—that's still really awesome. <laughs> Thank you. 
So yeah, I'll, I'll go back a little bit further to high school. I think I was in a unique position being one of four Indian students uh, in a high school of 2,200 kids. And then my brother graduated and I was down to three, but I, uh, I fall <laughs> in hockey and on the football team, I was one of the few kids who was not black. And on the hockey team, I was the only kid who wasn't white. And so I was always in this really unique position of sort of being uh, the brown guy in the middle, both figuratively and literally. And what I noticed was just during my time in high school, these huge differences in educational trajectory uh, between those two groups of friends I had, despite uh, no differences at all in intellect, work ethic, curiosity, all of those things. That led me to my senior year speaking out in support of a uh, proposed charter school in my district that was narrowly voted down. It was geared towards supporting students, low-income students of color. Uh, Madison has one of the largest achievement gaps in the country, always has. Um, and that really started the relationship with the person who I ended up co-founding One City with, Kaleem Care. So after my freshman year at Columbia, um, I was working a part-time delivery driver job and he asked me, he said, hey, I have some work for you. So we did a lot of research on the need for early childhood education in South Madison, which was a preschool desert at the time. And we used that to develop a business plan for a preschool that we ended up starting. But during my time at Columbia, I also had a job with an econ professor studying charter schools, school funding, and, and stuff in the education realm for my last two years of school. And then after that, I always knew I wanted to be in education. So I did Teach for America in Memphis. So I found myself down south teaching uh, 12th grade math and personal finance at a public charter school there. Uh, that I did that for two years, and then I was planning to stay there. But my, my boss, Kaleem, asked me to move back up to Madison. The preschool had been going really well, and the parents wanted us to grow vertically. So I'd helped them from afar work on the charter proposal to the state, and we ultimately got approved. So he asked me to come home, put on the business hat, and run operations as we grew vertically as an independent charter school in Madison, the first ever in the city. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, so I do think we have to talk about a, a hot button question in education. And I also think there's a lot of misconceptions surrounding it, which is number one, what is a charter? So if one of you could just like briefly explain the difference between a charter and a public school or a private, a traditional public school and a private school, and also, you know, speak to maybe why there is some controversy and your own personal opinion on charter schools. Yeah, I, I could take this one. So charter schools are publicly funded schools that are run either by districts or separately from districts by nonprofits. And in both cases, they enjoy, enjoy significantly more autonomy over curriculum, hiring decisions, um, structure of the school year, those types of things. And like I said, most are run either by districts or nonprofits, but there is a shitty little sliver of for-profit charter schools. Uh, yeah, I'm like, I never bring that up when people ask. I'm like, shh. Well, it's a ban for profit charter schools. One of the notable exceptions is Betsy DeVos's Michigan, where she pushed for for profits. Um, most serve more students of low income and color than traditional schools on average, mostly because of their concentration in urban areas. Uh, and, and Liv, jump in here. But I think some of the concerns around charter schools relate to uh, accountability of, of public funds, uh, questions of organizational history in the communities they serve. Uh, oftentimes they're sort of third party operators that go set up shop in an area they've never had a history in. Um, and I think there's also questions about, uh, you know, sometimes who they're funded by on the philanthropic side or, and, and one, I, one of the biggest drivers I think is just fundamentally a desire of a lot of folks um, to maintain a more traditional model of geographically zoned neighborhood schools with typically unionized workforces. So those are some of the concerns that, that folks raise. 
that that pretty much covered it. Um, I think there's a lot of feelings about charters and and what they will do to the district schools um, because of who has access to the charters, right? And which families are motivated and able to enter a lottery system um, and how that just like disproportionately impacts the public schools that are kind of left in the wake. Yeah, for people that don't know, charter schools, you still do not pay to go to a charter school and it's not like a selective application process like a private school where, you know, you have test scores and grades and into consideration, right? It's they vary, but most of them I think, you know, use a lottery system. Yeah, I was I was just going to add I think that uh, there are a lot of good criticisms of, of particular charter schools and philosophical concerns to be had. I also think what really matters is the specific school. On average, charter schools don't really outperform or underperform traditional schools. It really depends on the organization. So I think evaluating every single school in its community context is really important. Um, I think Absolutely. one thing that's always sort of struck me, and like I said, there are several criticisms of charter schools that I think are legitimate but charter schools serve 6% of the total public school students in this country, but occupy a disproportional share of the debate. And I think that distracts us from some other conversations, even just around school choice. So for example, one of the things we never talk about is open enrollment. I had a conversation with the CFO of the Madison School District, and she said, she said, you know, we love what you guys are doing. Uh, the community's behind you guys. You, know, you grew up, you grew from a preschool, but you still take $500,000 a year from our school, from our school district. And I said, yeah, that's true. You know, I, I'm not happy about that just based on the way the funding structure is, but open enrollment, meaning students who live in the city of Madison and who wanna go instead to school in a neighboring suburb, that has a net $6 million drain on the school district every year. That's a 12 times uh, larger yeah. magnitude problem for the district financially. We're not talking about that. And open, yeah. there's open enrollment programs in 43 states and they're just thinly veiled programs to facilitate white flight out of city schools. Hi all, Viv here. Quick note on what I mean by open enrollment. Open enrollment policies allow students to transfer from one public school to another of their choice, sometimes within districts, but oftentimes across them. While each open enrollment policy has its own local context, in effect, many of these policies have allowed affluent, oftentimes white, families to instead enroll their students in more well-resourced suburban public schools, thereby reducing the funding available to the city districts in which these families reside. This has happened in Madison, Minneapolis, Salt Lake City, and countless other regions across the country. So I, I think that the charter question needs to continue to be talked about. I think it needs to be put on the table. But I think there's a lot of ways that school funding is affected in orders of magnitude far larger than charters that people don't want to talk about. Absolutely. That's a really excellent point. Thank you for, for bringing that up. Um, I do want to talk about uh, early childhood education, ECE, uh, specifically because both of you are intimately involved in that. And as a middle school teacher, it was something that was on my mind a lot, right? Thinking about the disparities in what my students received in terms of like ECE. But for people who maybe aren't as connected to the education world or, or haven't really learned about this a ton, do you mind just breaking down why ECE is so incredibly important, why you were drawn to that specifically? Um, and maybe some, you know, some common knowledge, some, some knowledge that's common to educators, but maybe not to the population at large about you know, early childhood development. Um, all right. Some, some basics are, we know that 90% of brain development happens in the first three years of life, right? So clearly a lot is going on when kids are very, very little. Um, it's also really important to know that a child's expressive language abilities at the age of three is a predictor of their reading success in third grade, 
which is also a predictor of like likelihood of graduating high school, likelihood of being in prison. All of those things are all very deeply connected and, and just like really make a huge case for why we just desperately yeah. need to put more attention into early childhood education. Absolutely. Yeah, I will add all those all those things are, are so true and which makes it all the more frustrating that we don't want to publicly fund it the way, I mean, our K-12 education system is underfunded as is. Um, our early childhood infrastructure is even less funded. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm just going to give you a really relevant example that's been weighing on my mind uh, with COVID, but, you know, uh, early childhood educators are far more likely to be women, far more likely to be people of color. Uh, and we really have no support either broadly or even within the K-12 education community for them when it comes to safely returning to work, when it comes to not making $11 an hour, when it comes to getting comprehensive benefits. So I'm going to add that not only does the public at large not really think about the plight of early childhood educators or early childhood education generally, but even in the K-12 world, we've sort of divorced ourselves from it. It's like two different systems. And I know at my school, we, we had the benefit of starting with, uh, with kids as young as one and, and going upwards. Um, and we saw a huge difference between kindergarten readiness, even when we equalized for, for other factors, um, between kids who had done preschool with us versus those who hadn't. Um, there's a huge impact, and, and for whatever reason, it just hasn't gotten the political uh, attention that I think it really deserves. Yeah, I do think there's still this this perception that early childhood education is like glorified babysitting, um, which blows my mind because, you know, I spent days with 150, 13 year olds and I can confidently say that I could never last as a preschool or kinder teacher. Like I could not do it. There's some there's such a specific skill set as well. Like you're being asked to you know teach kids who have never been in social settings before, right? Like how to behave, how to interact with others, how to go about learning. Um, but I do think you're absolutely right that like public perception is still, you know, it's, you know, you just get to play with toys with them all day and that's, and that's it. Um, which is super frustrating. Um, all right. So, I mean, we can keep talking about ECE throughout all of this. Cause I do think that that's going to be the, the core thread. Um, but as, um, school leaders, as people who have been in education for, for a while now, um, I know this is a really difficult question to answer, but if you could snap, you know, at the snap of your fingers, have three things change with regard to education, what would they be? <laughs> and if you're thinking, I'll, I could tell you my first one that I feel like would make a really profound impact pretty immediately. And that's just class size. I think that's one of like the easiest ways um, to make a really su- substantial change, right? If my class sizes had gone from 30 to 15. So that's one of mine. I can't say I know what my other two are, but <laughs> do you have any up that come, come to mind? Class size is a really good one. I think the three that come to mind for me would be universal pre-K um, and not just starting at four years old, but starting even younger for all the reasons Liv just described. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I think the other one, so that's the front end of the continuum. The back end of the continuum, I think is really important is the reality is I had a lot of students who graduated, did fine uh, as 12th graders, but who graduated without job prospects that were any better than minimum wage jobs. Uh, I think that we need to rethink, and a lot of schools are already doing this, whether it's technical diploma or certificate or even an associate's degree in some cases, but what can we provide during high school that sets a kid up? Uh, to have some upwards wage mobility if they don't want to go to college. Uh, I think that's something that's really important. And the last one I would say is the summer is a major problem. Uh, We have a nine month school year that was set up for an agrarian economy and for, for people who can afford to take the summer off. So 
one thing I, I really feel strongly about is we're talking about the impact of COVID on, on kids and prolonged school closures. That happens every year. It's called the summer. And yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's heartbreaking because, um, you know, kids from affluent families over the summer are in academic boot camps or in, in other extracurriculars that are engaging them intellectually. And, and low-income students oftentimes are not. And so I really, I don't know what the perfect solution is. My school goes longer through the summer. We've had some problems with that. We've had some success with it. But I think talking about retooling the summer is really important. Those were all really good. Um, and I probably would think of very similar ones. Um, I think universal pre-K is definitely one of them. And then also just like, how do we elevate the professionalism of early childhood? Um, kind of back to what you were saying before. I, I really think that's a huge issue and something that I would love to snap my fingers and solve. Um, yeah. 100K starting salary. Yeah, please. And thank you. Um, yeah. But yeah. Those would be my two that I can think of. Absolutely. Um, Viv, you kind of started to touch on this, but I do want to hear a little bit more because both of you, I think, are working in unique settings. So what kinds of things are unique about your schools? What are some considerations that went into the creation of your schools that probably is not happening elsewhere, but that you think is super important and, and you would like to see happening across the board? Well, I mentioned our founding history a little bit. We started with preschool uh, and then we grew vertically as a charter based on what our community asked for. And before we built the charter application, we had five 90-minute listening sessions around South Madison, gauging input, not just from our direct families, but from people in the community. So my boss and founder grew up on the same block as my school is. Um, he's a native son of Madison, has been in the community for a long time, so we have that credibility. I think that's important, is that organizational history when you're building something new. I think the other things that we're doing are, are unique or oftentimes, we, because we started with that preschool model, we sort of exported it to K-12. So we have a longer summer. That means we have to pay people more. Um, we have a longer school day. We don't try to cram in more instructional time, but we try to really integrate extracurriculars that kids might not otherwise get into the course of longer school day. So our kids do ice skating in the winter through a partnership with the ice arena. They have- I love it. We, we have art, we have all these different extracurriculars that spark interests and curiosities and passions. And that I think are, are something that I'm really proud about. Um, so those would be a couple that I, that I think are important. We, our school is very unique. Um, we are doing things, uh, sometimes doing things very complicated, but all in service of really becoming a community hub for East Palo Alto. We, mm-hmm. all of our families, when they, um, when they enter into our programming, we actually pull our lottery at um, like one and a half years old. So our kids are in our school before they're in our school. So all of our families get paired with a parent coach and that person really focuses on the adult's well-being because really, we really think that like you're, a, you're an adult, you're a human first, and then you're a parent. Um, and when you're a happy, successful adult, you will be a better parent. Um, and so we have a coaching team of these amazing, amazing women who are all from the community, who um, grew up in the community and still live in the community. And they work with all of our families um, to do goal setting, to help them think about their own wellness and how to get rid of stress in their lives and how to find legal services or jobs and things like that. So our coaching program is super unique and super amazing. Um, And then our kids start school at three. So our kids start full-time school at three years old. um, And we pay our early childhood educators the same as we pay our elementary school teachers, which is 
not should not be unique, but is unique. Um, <laughs> and we are a school that really does not just focus on academics. So we partner with the clinic in our community um, to ensure that our kids have health care. Um, and so we, we talk about academics, health, and the soul of our children, um, which is our bucket word for like social emotional development. And so we really talk about like the whole child. Um, and yeah, that's some of the unique pieces of our programming. Um, yeah. We have a medical director that works with us. And so like our kids get their flu shots at school. Um, and we like do toothbrushing in elementary school, which is people think is yeah. crazy and gross, but, um, <laughs> but we do it because uh, we believe in, in health as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what you both have talked about, there's this question of like, what, is it a school's responsibility to do more than educated child? And Viv, you, you talked about, right? Like the, the inception of schools was a a very different purpose than what it is maybe today. But I do, I do wonder about the philosophy for each of you personally, Um, you know, should schools be a hub of resources, not only for the child, but for the entire family? Uh, Is that the school's responsibility? Or is this like, the result of living in a country that is so deeply wounded that like it's the onus has just fallen on schools to do that. We talk about this a lot at our school of like, should we be the answer to everything? And the thing is we shouldn't be right. Because eventually our kids will leave us. Our families will leave us. And like, will they be able to navigate the realities? Um, And so we talk about how do we create a system at our school that supports parents learning how to be advocates support them learning how to navigate different systems um, and more. But I also do believe that schools should be doing more than just like reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? Like I do believe that we have a responsibility to educate children and educate them on their on their soul, right? And like make sure that they are- Yeah, the entire child. Right. Yeah, it blows my mind that that's not intrinsic to what we believe <laughs> schooling is, which is wild because, you know, you're there for eight plus hours. Um how are you not going to address a child's soul and well-being and worldview, you know? My answer is is echoing that. I think I strongly do believe that schools need to be a place that uh, more than just academics happen, but I don't think that conversation can happen apart from funding. Um, I know what it takes to, to run a, char- a you know, startup charter school in the first few years. We get $9,000 of funding per kid we spend about $20,000 and that Delta is made up through fundraising. And in a small city like Madison, we don't have mega donors. We don't have people backing us. So uh, we, we've been in that place, Leanna, where I wake up in the middle of the night over and over again on a Tuesday morning, trying to figure out how we're going to make payroll Thursday morning. And yeah. I've feared multiple times our school would close because of that. And we are trying, like we have a two generational model. I don't think we have the, the, support for as, uh, sort of the coaches that you guys talk about. We have one director of family community relations. Um, we have a parent engagement program on Thursday nights that we have a couple of ho- cohorts for. We have a school social worker, but some of these things we just can't do budgetarily. And we are still resourcing our school way more than what most schools in Wisconsin are able to do. So if we want to expand their mandate, we have to expand their resources. Yeah. I, I, you bring up an excellent point. Like if we just shifted the police budget and made it the education budget, imagine what would be possible, right? Because people are already doing this work. You two are, are brilliant examples of this, right? Like if I, if all of these people that had these ideas and have, you know, organizations in place willing to do it and they just got the funding, imagine the world that would be possible. Um, okay, I'm gonna hop off the soapbox, but but I do, you know, feel very strongly about that. And I know you, you both do as well. Um, going back to like what schools have in terms of like responsibility, I think another really interesting question um, 
is about culture. And so you both have touched upon like the importance of having school leaders and having community input and in creating a school. Um, and I, you know, talked to my students a lot and, and something that they reflected on uh, specifically was like the double standard within for my students, Latinx culture, right at home. So gendered expectations at home and how they kind of um, persist within the classroom, right? And also in my time as an educator, I saw and received pushback from parents, from community members um, for running our schools like LGBTQIA plus club. Um, there were moments where students' parents when told their child made like a sexist remark um, or something that we as a school or in our school culture deemed inappropriate that they backed their, their child and said that there was nothing wrong with that behavior. So my question for you both, you know, as former teachers, but also as, as people creating the culture of a school, as school leaders, as coaching other teachers, what do you believe is the school's role in shaping the beliefs and the values of its students? At what point do you defer to parents? And how do you kind of like negotiate when there is a culture clash? I love that neither one of us like immediately unmuted to answer this question. Um, I think um, our stance is very much that like, parents are their child's first teacher and that we have like an extreme amount of respect for our parents. I think also there are a lot of schools that are out there that are like, we can only control what happens during the eight hours the kids are here. And like, we can't control the parents. We can't. And they like very much work around parents. And I think that we're a school that really wants to work with parents, but I do, I do see the culture clash a lot. Um, and I think about just what is the work that we're doing in our parent program to help kind of like dismantle some of the, some of the beliefs. And I mean, some of the beliefs are totally valid and, and fine. And like, that's your culture and we respect that, but it's definitely, I mean, it's definitely hard to navigate. Yeah. I, that's a really hard question. Viv, yeah. <laughs> wise that you can say, please. Uh, this one, this one's a really tricky one. Uh, I've also seen the culture clash over and over again. And I think oftentimes it happens between staffs that are whiter, that are more affluent, um, that may not represent the diversity of the communities that they serve. And so those conversations become increasingly difficult when that happens. I think first and foremost, schools have a responsibility to create a physically and emotional safe environment uh, for any child who walks through those doors, point blank, period, end of story. Uh, but what that requires of schools is really thorny to navigate in practice. So if there's bullying, interventions need to be had. If there need to be proactive conversations around respecting people no matter what. Um, but I also think to your point about respecting families, we have to ensure that we don't take on a savior mentality of saving kids from their family's beliefs. I don't have a great answer for, for how to navigate that line, but I do think some of it depends on age. So for example, when I taught high school seniors, I had a student who was really struggling with being gay in Memphis, Tennessee, in a community that was heavily uh, Baptist, uh, Pentecostal. Uh, and I felt like what that required of me as an educator was to be explicit and say, I support you. I think that you're going to, you know, do X, Y, and Z. There's so much ahead of you. And that required me to be really explicitly supportive. Um, how does that change with two and three-year-olds? Uh, yeah terms of what conversations are had uh, or whether you're proactive or whether you're reactive. I don't have a great answer for that. I've. Yeah. It's also really tricky because I, you know, I hate the, I hate this rhetoric, but the belief that like schools are supposed to be apolitical. I mean, that's absolute bullshit, but like, you know, the, the, the idea that like, if you ask your teacher who they're going to vote for, they shouldn't tell you, 
you know, I was always a teacher that was like, I'll tell you, <laughs> but it is really tricky because as a human, right, teachers are humans and they have beliefs and they have a core set of values that I am not willing to negotiate, but also understanding that I also have biases, right? And I also come from a specific culture and my beliefs may be antithetical to that of my kids' parents. And so, you know, like understanding how to best approach that and having the support, I think, of my administration with a lot of things was really helpful. I, think I don't know that, if there is a, yeah. I think that's really important, which um, I think is, is I've seen over and over again, which is that adults who want the same outcomes, who are all committed to educational equity, oftentimes have very different views on what that requires of us to get there. And I think a lot of it starts with having those conversations really honestly during the hiring process, for example, is people who are committed to the same outcomes for our students have different good faith disagreements on how we get there. And I think one of the most important things that I, I strongly feel is that schools can have different approaches to really creating awesome life-changing experiences for our students, but adults need to be on the same page. And uh, that requires some proactive, uncomfortable conversations up front to know whether certain schools are good fits for, for both admin and teacher and just everybody on the team. Uh, and I think it's important to have those conversations proactively. Yeah, thank you. That that goes perfectly into my next question, which is that I feel that a lot of the rhetoric around school success um, is that it's contingent upon individual teachers, right? Like if we get better funding, we can hire better people. And if we just got the right people, like we'd be in a much better place. And so I, can, I have two questions regarding this. So the first is like having also been a teacher and seeing, you know, the fine line between wanting to model a growth mindset and investing in educators so that they can grow and, you know, recognizing that, you know, they can get better at their practice, just like in anything else, but also understanding that the flip side of that is that you may be keeping somebody around um, who may not be a good fit, you know, while you're trying to see if you can like coach them up. And, and in that time, they may be actively causing harm or, you know, not providing the best possible education that maybe somebody else could. So, my first question is like, what's the right call there? Do you keep an educator around and see, you know, can we mold them into the best they can possibly be knowing that there's, there, there might be a chance that students suffer because of it. That's question A. And then question B is this assumption that, you know, good teachers will solve most problems. Is that true? Or do we think that there are larger, much more important issues that need to be addressed um, that actually are what prevent people from becoming good teachers or being attracted to being a teacher in the first place? For me, um, I definitely believe in, in growing our people. Um, we, our school is really committed to supporting like our assistants to then become associates, to then become leads, right? Like how do we grow our own people? And I think back to what Viv was saying and like the hiring conversations, making sure that they're aligned with you philosophically is the most important thing. And then being able to coach them and see, um, see where they can go. So I think like, if you're not the best teacher ever, it's okay. Um, as long as I think your head and your heart are in the right place and that you're like willing and able to grow through coaching. Um, so that's my answer for part A. And part B, um, oh my gosh, what was part B? Part B was essentially like, yeah, no, it's okay. Part B was essentially like this rhetoric around like if we just got good teachers, most of our problems would be solved. How much of that is true? How much of that is like a misguided or misplaced belief and and is there something larger that's preventing people from from becoming good teachers or being attracted to teaching in the first place the whole system is wrong the whole system 
Um, but no, I, I, I mean, I really do think it's like the whole system needs a revamp um, because good teachers, people who want to teach are leaving because they are being drip, drilled into the ground because they're expected to hold too much. They're being asked to do way too much. That's like out of their scope and like they want to do it, right? Like people go into education because they, they want to do the thing and then they just get they just are worked too hard and asked to do too much with too little. Um, yeah. So it's a, it's a complete overhaul of the whole system, Leanna. Burn it all down. <laughs> yep. Super easy. Okay, great. Got it. <laughs> hey, Liv here. Just to give you a picture of how bad teacher turnover rates are, it's estimated that nearly 50% of teachers will leave the profession within the first five years. That statistic has been stated a lot and sometimes disputed, but we hear that the minimum is 8% every single year. And the schools that are losing their teachers are most often schools in high poverty areas with majority students of color and or with lots of English language learners. And the way to keep our teachers, high quality mentorship and a competitive, re-livable salary. Okay, back to the podcast. Um, I, I think this one is a tough question. It's one that definitely permeates uh, school leadership for sure. And I think that... Uh, What's true that I feel really strongly about is nobody can do their best work when they feel on edge. People need to feel like they can ask for help, that they can get help, that they don't need to perform. I've seen school environments where people are really scared uh, to be observed by admin um, because what they fear the result's going to be. And I think that professional development is really important. We have also uh, a desire to build our own pipeline, grow our own. You can't do that if it's not a, a, if you feel like you're on edge and your job's at jeopardy. Now, with that being said, I also think it's important to acknowledge that sometimes there are people who are harmful for our kids. The best hiring processes will have people that fall through the cracks. Uh, you know, there's, there, there are people who harbor and express deeply racist beliefs around students of color and they deserve no place in the classroom. So as much as I support somebody's right or somebody's, uh, you know, professional development, there's certain things that can't be compromised. There's certain, and, and I, I feel strongly that this is, you know, education is too important to have too long a leash with people who are not right for kids. Uh, what's harder is where do you draw that line of not being right for students? Uh, Absolutely. You know, the other extreme, you have people who are like, oh, you didn't move the, the, the needle on these test scores uh, your first year. Sorry. Um, that's, that's another extreme that I think is really unhealthy and unproductive and and short-sighted. So again, where you draw that line is, is really tough. Um, well, there is, there's no standardized testing in early childhood. So all that doesn't start till third grade, um, at least in the state of California. Um, and for our little ones, I think people are really having trouble determining what does it mean to be like kinder ready, right? Because I think, um, there's a lot of schools of thought that are around, like, we need to get, we need to, like push down what was happening in first grade into kinder, what was happening in kinder into preschool, right. To like get these kids of color ready for school. Um, and then there's a lot of research around there on like how important play is and how important like language development is and how actually that, if you have that and you do it right when they're little, they are ready to learn when they hit kinder. Um, and so I think there's a big, a big push and pull in ECE, Um, and especially like when you are at like a rigorous school, um, and then you, a parent walks in and sees that their child is playing and they're like, what the heck, what's going on here? Like, why are these kids playing all day? Um, (laughs) Parents say that, like, why do I feel like they play all day? I'm like, that's what learning is. When you're (laughs) also, there's three. (laughs) 
I know. They're like, why do the kids play all day at your school? I'm like, because that's <laughs> literally what kids do when, to learn, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Negotiating like spatial relationships, all of that is like the beginnings of math, right? Or like the social engagement, right? Like, how do I share? How do I take turns? How do I like negotiate? All of that, right? It's like, it's all related and it serves a purpose. And so, right, just like trying to convince people that I promise you, if they play really good when they're little, they're going to be really <laughs> smart when they're older. I love that. That should be your school motto. We'll get them to play good. I promise. <laughs> yeah, it's a standardized testing at that level is not really a thing. In, in kindergarten and first, we start to use MAP, which again is uh, an assessment of, of some building blocks, but not proficiency necessarily. But it, it, it looks and it should look more like the energy you feel than, than anything you see on paper. Yeah, how a classroom looks is such a contentious thing, I think. You know, how does a classroom that is learning look? At the middle school level, I had this like internalized belief like, oh, it's going to be silent, right? I'm going to be the only one talking. It's going to be totally silent. Every single student is going to be paying attention to me at all times. And it's like, that's honestly probably when the least amount of learning is happening, right? Like they're checked out. Um, like a noisy classroom, it does not mean that no learning is happening. If kids are laughing, right, there's also this belief, especially in like middle school, high school, that something is wrong. Um, and like joy has been stripped away from from education, which I think is, you know, really heartbreaking. Um, it just makes sense that you're going to learn more and, and be more invested in your time at school if it's a joyful plate. Um, but I am really curious about um, like SPED and diagnoses at the ECE level. And I, you know, so what I mean for for those people that maybe don't know, right, like special education and giving a child like an individualized education plan at IEP um, can start as early as kindergarten. But there's, you know, a lot of... Um, you start earlier, Leanna. Start earlier than kindergarten, right? Mm-hmm. And that kind of blows my mind. But like, how does that work? And also there's, you know, disproportionate levels of, of diagnoses based on race, based on socioeconomic status. So how does that work? Uh, we're a school that believes in early intervention. And so all of our kids, before they come to our school, do what's called the ASQ. It's the ages and stages questionnaire. Um, and they have them at various levels. So, right, they have them when you're six months, when you're 12 months, 18 months, and so on and so forth. Um, And it's basically a screening tool that we use to see if there are any types of like developmental delays. We think it's really important to to get to catch those early so that kids can phase out of special education as quickly as possible. We should not have to wait until you are years and years behind to get you the services that you need. Um, And that is my strong belief. And that is not how our special education departments work. Right. You have to prove that a child is failing for two years before you can get them what they need. And like that is just wrong. Like we should not be looking at a child flailing in the classroom and like unable to learn and be like, oh, well, they're only one year behind. Let's wait a little longer, right? Um, So I believe in early intervention as as I'm sure lots and lots of other people um, in ECE do. So we do all, we do um, a screening tool with all of our incoming three-year-olds, which is not typical, right? Usually you wait until a kid is again, really far behind and really struggling um, to get a speech evaluation done. So we do a screener for all kids and then we refer them to our district. Also, can I add on one more thing? Um, the way that SPED works is also really frustrating because you have to be below a certain percentile. Um, so mm. you might not know this, but like in order to receive speech services, you need to be below the seventh percentile. The seventh percentile? If you are below the 20th percentile, you should get, if you are below the 40th percentile, you should get services, right? And like, I get that, our like districts and spend departments have to have a cutoff, right? 
but the cutoff is so low that there are there's a huge amount of kids that even if we do refer them, even if they do get the eval, all of that stuff, they won't get services because they're in the eighth percentile. So like, yeah, that cutoff is arbitrary and related to resources, right? It's not rooted in any like scientific belief or desire to actually have kids succeed because you would be giving everyone as many services as possible if that's what you wanted. <laughs> right. Like everyone kind of needs an IEP. <laughs> yeah. I, I can speak to what it looks like to have students who have never been assessed, right? To reach seventh grade and to have internalized, I'm stupid, right? And I've seen that so many times and I'm like, you know, that's that's so frustrating because this child, how they've been given the, the services that they need would be in a completely different place, not just in terms of their academics, but how they feel about themselves, right? Like having students who have dyslexia, for instance, and and feeling like I'm just dumb is one was one of the most heartbreaking things for me because I'm like, you're not, you know, you're not dumb. You haven't been given the resources, the tools, the coping skills that you need, but you're 14 now and that's your belief about yourself. You've built your identity around that um, and, and you you know, hopefully can someday reverse that and, and view yourself as capable and as a good student. But by that time, so many kids are like, no, academics just aren't for me. My future is not going to have that in it. Um, so thank you for, for sharing that and breaking it down because I think that's incredibly important. I don't have a ton to add in this area. I will say that I think looking at equity of diagnoses is really important. In Madison schools, for example, 43% of Black males are designated as special ed, whereas for every other group, it's more like 10 to 15%. Um, so regardless of the philosophy that's, that's taken to approach diagnoses and support, I do think it's really important to ensure that uh, sort of conduct an equity audit of sorts, if that makes sense, um, because we do see uh, inequities that are manifested even in supports. Um, and to the point about funding, like I, I, that's very real is people are setting these, these cutoffs arbitrarily because of funding. You know, we spend and are, and are legally obligated to spend every single dollar. I think last year, our first year of the charter school, we spent more than $100,000 um, on SPED and the state gave us back about 20K to help support that. Yeah, thank you. Um, and you mentioned, right, like that disproportionate uh, population of, you know, Black boys with IEPs, right, within SPED programs. I'm wondering um, about the school to prison pipeline it's something that is obviously super relevant and prevalent in middle schools and high schools, but you know, there have been tons of reports of it happening as early as elementary school, preschool, right? Like police officers at elementary schools, which blows my freaking mind. Um, so my question for you all is like, how do your schools kind of actively fight against it? You know, what does that look like with kiddos that are two, three, and four? I think Liv, you kind of already talked about this, but I think a lot about like the regulation of bodies. Um, and, you know, it sounds like your school is a, is a deep believer in like free movement and play. Curious, you know, what specific considerations went into the creation of your schools and how it's lived out there um, to, to disrupt the school to prison pipeline. Uh, at One City, we approached this by really heavily resourcing the first, resourcing the first few years of the student's uh, educational journey with us. So we have an assistant teacher in every single classroom and a one to 10 uh, teacher to student ratio all the way through second grade. Um, we meet families where they're at. I think one of the things that came out of our feedback sessions when we were developing the school was the need for a longer school day and a longer school year, just because a lot of our, our families don't have schedule flexibility. Um, Another one would be just supporting families when things come up. We raised over $100,000 to help families avoid eviction, to pay for uh, all types of expenses and unforeseen circumstances that came up during COVID and uh, technology needs. And when you're able to stabilize families, we see 
what that does for kids. The last thing I'll say that I think is, is I'm, I think is maybe the thing I feel most strongly about is we are a majority black school and we are unapologetically Afrocentric in our approach. So students see themselves reflected in curricula. It's still a work in progress, but they see themselves not only in black teaching staff, if they see a black principal, they see a black CEO, they see a black board chair and white kids benefit from that too. Cause they will come to see, know and get used to black leadership and black excellence in a city that has some of the largest racial disparities in the country. And hopefully those white kids will be less racist as a result. So I think being really unapologetically Afrocentric, and that's an inclusive version of Afrocentrism, about 25% of our students are not black, um, but everybody benefits from that when we own it. I'm like, yeah, I'm like cheering. (laughs) Yeah, and silent cheering over here like. (laughs) If you're wondering why Liv and I just got so excited about Viv's school's commitment to Afrocentrism in staff and culture, it's because studies have shown that culturally relevant teaching is significantly associated with positive academic outcomes and ethnic racial identity development. This kind of teaching has also been shown to reduce the discipline gap, which I talked about in part one with my former students. This follows the pretty simple logic that if the people teaching you and the content they are teaching affirms you, you'll do better. Yeah, disrupting the school to prison pipeline. Uh, I mean, as I've stated before, like we really deeply partner with our parents. Um, and I think too, it's just we as a school, are this, our stance is that like we are a safe place. We are your safe keepers. Um, our job is to keep you safe. And I think that like when you reframe yourself as a teacher, as an, as an admin, that like my job is actually to keep you safe first. Um, I think that just like changes how you approach your work, right? Like a kid is on top of a table doing something crazy, right? It's going to happen. And when I think about like, my job is to keep this child safe. It's not, my job is not to control this child. My job yes, is to I was about to say child. safety versus control. Yep. Exactly. And we talk about connection over compliance, right? So like, when you build a relationship with a child, with a family, with, with your school community, it's just, it just sets a different tone. And I think that um, we want to be a school that, that does that for, for our families. And that tells them that like, my, my biggest thing is to just make sure that you and your child and your family are safe. I would challenge, you know, middle school, high school, educators of older kids to think that way as well. You can very easily extend that thinking for, you know, if you aren't black or if you are not a person of color, if you're a white educator, it's all the more important, um, especially to investigate like what, what your beliefs are about your students. But I do think that it's on school leadership to investigate that in the hiring process. Right. Uh, I'll never forget um, when I was teaching up in Richmond and a student was suspended from school and then was literally murdered that day. I'm like, why are we, why are, why are kids not in school? right? Like, what is the purpose of suspending a child? Just like, what is that, what is that doing? Right? Yeah. Like, I just, I don't believe in punishment. I, I believe in consequences, right? And right. I think consequences are getting confused with punishment, right? Because people are like, what's the consequence for this kid? Yeah. But that, you mean punishment. When you say it like that, you mean punishment. I believe in like logical and natural consequences because that's yes. how people learn. You learn when I punch you in the face and then you don't want to be my friend anymore. That is a natural consequence. I don't actually need to be put in timeout. I don't need to be like all of those other punishments don't need to happen because the natural consequence of my behavior will teach me and will motivate me to learn a new way. Right. And that's the idea of like, how, how are your teachers helping guide students to learn new skills and learn a new way rather than punishing them for doing something when like they, they actually don't know another way. Kids don't want to hit, kids don't want to 
not have friends, kids don't want to be put in timeout. Like that's not what they want. Um, and so just again, reframing, like my job is to keep them safe and, and to teach them new skills to help them be a successful person. Absolutely. All right. Getting towards the end here, I have two more questions for you. One of them is about, uh, you know, education alphabet soup because educators love their alphabet soup, love their words, um, their acronyms. And one of the biggest ones that I think I heard, you know, many times in my educator, probably more time, more in my time as an educator than ever in my entire life combined, which is the word resilience or like grit or ganas, right? It has all these other forms. Um, and specifically within the context of like teaching in low income communities. And I get it, right. I can get the desire to recognize like the added barriers that our kids face for kids of color, for kids, you know, from low income backgrounds. But my question for you is, do you think we glorify it? So like, in other words, when a school culture is built around an understanding that society is so messed up that you have to be twice as good, like, is it more helpful because you're attempting to prepare students for a reality or is it more harmful because you're not actively working against that reality to be like, let's make it so it's not twice as hard for you? Um, yeah. What is your What are your beliefs around the word resilience? <laughs> so I'll, I'll take first stab at this one. I when I was teaching twelfth grade personal finance, we had a debate breakout in my classes about what was a bigger uh, influencer over your your ultimate trajectory. Is it you know? work ethic and perseverance, or is it systems of oppression that limit your upward mobility? And interestingly, in my, in my class, it was about 50-50 down the middle. And, you know, I just sort of, I, I sat back, but where I sort of stand is that, you know, grit or perseverance as a concept seems fine. But to me, there's a couple issues. Uh, one of which is, and I think the first critique I would have is that oftentimes an emphasis on grit comes at the expense of a really honest reckoning with the systems that will hamper even our grittiest students. Uh, so I think it's necessary, but but oftentimes very insufficient. And we have to be really honest as educators with the fact that just being diligent and hardworking is not enough uh, in many cases. Um, yeah, it's like co the cousin of bootstrap theory. It's like a disguised version. Yeah, and I think that that's the other issue I have with it is, you know, many of my students already have grit. They, they work jobs every day after school. They take care of their siblings. Why am I lecturing them about bootstraps on shoes that I've never worn? It's just not my place. I agree 100%. And we have this conversation all the time at my school about do we prepare them for the reality that currently exists or do we prepare them for the world that we hope that they will live in? Um, and what's what's awful is that you kind of have to do both right and so we have to we as educators need to, to work twice as hard right to do both of those things for our kids um because it's true like I want I want to tell our kids that the world is going to be this beautiful place that I want it to be and it's not like our world is very much not fair um and not equitable and so like how do we just how do we do it how do we do both and then how do we like change the world so that we don't have to do both anymore? Yeah. I've reflected on this a lot because I, I will admit, right. I was somebody in the classroom that I was like resilience and I taught it as a vocab word and we talked about it a lot. And I'm not saying I shouldn't have done that. And I think I was, I think I was very honest about like why it's so important for my students specifically, but the irony of like me saying that somebody coming from so much privilege and telling my students like, Hey, you just have to have enough resilience and you'll get there. Um, is wild because I don't know how to frame that for them otherwise you know what I mean like the honest alternative 
to tell a 12 year old like hey you might bust your ass but like you still won't get there you know I'm not saying you should say that to 12 year olds right but it's like what what do I tell them I want them to try their hardest in this classroom I want them to have the best possible chance but also I recognize there are so many forces working against them you know I think that's a really good point you bring up Leanna because I'm I'm talking from the perspective of having had those conversations with 17 18 19 year olds and it's a different conversation and so I firmly believe that you know uh, grit or perseverance is necessary but insufficient and again uh i think that's a theme of a lot of things i think about education necessary but insufficient um yeah <laughs> so how do you how do you frame that especially when kids are at like a really formative stage like that i i haven't had to grapple with that uh firsthand like you have yeah well thank you thank you for working through that with me um my last question is what are your absolutely nots they could it could be a recap of things we've already said or something new but anything that you wish people would stop saying, thinking, doing, perceiving about, you know, ECE or just education in general? Give a, break it down. What are the absolutely not? Absolutely do not belittle early childhood educators. Absolutely do not tell them that they are just babysitting. Um, go, go, Viv. Let me, let me think so I don't fly off the handle. I, I, I feel strongly about a couple here, and one would be to sort of the both education community, but general public, which is absolutely do not talk to me about how pro-public school you are without doing some serious self-reflection on your privilege and agency and school choice. So private schools aside, we live in a system where your property taxes drive school funding and quality. And so if you live in a wealthier suburb, you choose to live in a wealthier suburb, you are exercising school choice. If you live in an urban district and are able to open and roll your child in the suburban district uh, that's more affluent, you are exercising school choice. So there are valids of the choice or valid critiques of the choice movement. I'm the first person to talk about where the charter movement has gone wrong. But before you uniformly paint with a really broad brush about what's right for communities you're not a part of, um, I think you really need to think carefully about whose school choice you care about limiting and who's you're okay with protecting. Um, I would say my other absolutely not is for white educators and other educators who are not a part of the communities that they serve. And this might actually be more towards people who think they agree with me, but I want them to be really listening carefully because uh, my absolute not is absolutely do not undercut coworkers and leaders of color at your school insidiously. Do not post about Black Lives Matter while consistently undermining the black leaders at your school, and especially in front of an audience. Provide tough, constructive critiques uh, if you have an issue with no excuse tactics, for example, press that issue, have that conversation, have that conversation face-to-face, -face. engage in ongoing dialogues that are tough about what issues you have with your school environment because leaders of color are not immune from criticism. But they were likely there long before you were, they will likely be there long after you were. And reading White Fragility, criticizing Joe Biden or TFA and committing to anti-racism in theory does not inoculate you from being a really shitty coworker in practice that undermines the people around you. All right, I appreciate you pointing that out. Liv, did you think of any others? Absolutely do not tell teachers that they don't deserve to get their summers off, that they don't deserve to get paid more, and that they're not working during the pandemic. Like teachers working from home right now are doing some incredible, incredible things and um, just absolutely don't fuck with teachers. 
Yes. And also I need everyone listening to know that Liv is literally sitting here with a brace on her arm because she has carpal tunnel because she has been working so hard. Um, so administrators too, right? The contingency plans that administrators are making right now, um, the hours put in, you know, not during a pandemic, but especially during a pandemic, teachers have not stopped, you know, planning and trying to figure out how to do do something that's never been done before. So thank you for that. So absolutely do respect teachers. Um, but thank you both so much for joining me. I, you know, appreciate you both a, a lot and respect you a lot and have learned a lot from you. Um, and that's all. It's been a pleasure. Just fun. Okay, bye guys. <laughs> bye. Thank you so much to Viv, Liv, and educators everywhere working to make schools not only places of learning, but places families and communities can rely on to provide resources and support. I can't stress enough how much respect I have for all educators, and especially early childhood educators. The work you do is wildly important and wildly undervalued. So if you are listening to this and wondering if you should hit up that one life-changing teacher you had, even though they maybe forgot your name, do it. I promise it will be well-received. That's all for today, and those will be next time on Absolutely Not. Absolutely not.